Hello everyone and welcome back to the Computer Vision in Production podcast show. The podcast show where we talk all about everything computer vision, from the individual components of the technology including vision, cameras and deep learning, right through to hearing about some of the most interesting applications that companies are using at the moment. everyone and welcome to the computer vision and production podcast i'm your host anthony kelly today's guest is stefan habenshush who is the head of machine learning with blackshark.ai stefan great to great to have you on the show welcome to the podcast yeah thanks anthony really great to be with you today nice yeah great to uh finally get this one set up after a couple of of reschedules but yeah i've got you now and Looking forward to to really going through and finding out more about Black Shark and, and what you're working on. Awesome, yeah, sure. I suppose. Look, before we obviously get into into too much about Black Shark, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of an overview about yourself, your background, kind of how you started in AI, and I suppose eventually tippled into computer vision. Yeah, sure. I guess you could say I have a dual background. One is uh, in, the, in gaming, and the other is in AI. So it started. It all started for me with gaming. I was as a kid. I was very interested in like, well, who isn't right? But uh, in playing games. But then I quickly also started developing my own games, and uh, this became a passion of mine very early. Yeah, in parallel, I became more and more interested in artificial intelligence. I guess also because programming is really hard, and there was always this looming. Uh, promise of AI, just uh, doing away with all the the the, the uncomfortable programming, and just uh, have some AI that uh, that understands things and can program for you for you even right? does your work for you. So of course I, this is still far, far away, but as a child just, you're you're naive. Just with that, you know, coming from a gaming background, it must be quite exciting for you to see like you know the machine learning mixing with AR and VR. Uh, to build like these these crazy apps and these crazy worlds, right? Uh, that are going to really impact the video game industry oh yeah i mean the, the progress has been uh, just stunning in the last um, three decades right i think we're finally now seeing uh, with vr and ar um yeah things coming together uh, uh slowly but steadily I I know a guy, uh, it was actually in the podcast a couple of couple of episodes back he spoke of an event of mine Ilias. uh i don't know if he said it on the podcast or if he just said it to me but he was like look ar and vr is going to going to be like the new mobile phone and obviously the stuff he's putting into it is all like segmentation and actually kind of the technologies that you're working on at black shark you know 2d and 3d uh, reconstruction so it's still the same but sorry to to lead you off so you were in you were in gaming starting to to fall into machine learning what was what was that what was that process like and how did it how did it happen because it's it's not everyone doing it you know yeah and i guess it it was actually one of those neural network or AI winters when I became interested. So it wasn't because it was very different from now, where a lot of people see the economic value in it and and believe that this will really re- revolutionize everything. Actually, back then uh, it was a very kind of niche thing to go into, and um, there weren't also that many opportunities. Uh, but fortunately, I had it at the Technical University in Graz in Austria. I had a chance to to join eventually the PhD program with a very uh, renowned uh, professor in the area of computational neuroscience, um, Wolfgang Maas. This was interesting to me because I was not just interested in the technical aspects actually of AI, but also on the, in the philosophical aspects of it and what it could mean for the future, how it connects to human intelligence, which you know, if you look at the 
founding fathers of AI has always been part of the story, right? Um, it's actually only recently that that people have started to diverge from it and to say, okay, we have we've got those GPUs. Let's not worry about what the brain is doing. But uh, most of the time, actually, in AI, this was one of the uh, the main sources of inspiration for how to progress in in uh, machine learning. Yeah. And so there's so many interesting threads to follow there. And I just picked a couple, I picked up a couple in my PhD thesis, essentially connecting machine learning algorithms that are you know, known to work on like expectation maximization and such to mechanisms in the brain and trying to find the evidence for these these algorithms actually playing out in the brain. And there is a couple of interesting stories there to tell. But of course, the brain is messy and uh, it's very hard to make any definitive statements. A lot of the, I would say, the, the, the complications that arise in that field are because the measurements are so tricky and so expensive. You know, Creating better measurements devices is a, a gradual process, which could still take a long time. Of course, there's Neuralink now. This didn't exist 10 years ago or so. And they have a very ambitious program that to push this forward and also enable enable this for commercial applications, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's obviously controversial, but it, I just know from the neuroscience perspective, this is extremely hard you know, to get, at least it used to be, um, to, to get reliable data at scale from the human brain to measure it at real time, uh, let alone to influence it. So of course you can do it uh, at small scale, uh, you can implant those chips, but this is not something that I would expect to see near uh, near term. I have, a, I spoke again with another company, Innovation, they were talking about using a neuromorphic vision. Um, is that, have you heard of that or is it kind of new to you or? So is neuromorphic vision, does it mean uh, you're doing computer vision with neuromorphic devices, I guess, uh, right? Do you know what, what it is? It's, it's actually in like virtual and AR environments. Uh, it basically saves GPU power by only focusing on what you need. So it doesn't load an environment behind you. If someone's 10 yards away from you, it doesn't like look to have high accuracy around facial features like wrinkles, for example. They would only be noticeable at maybe two yards. So to create realer environments and saving on uh, processing power. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's just so many things, right? Uh, it's really hard to, to keep track. You're doing a, a great job of giving a, a broad overview, I guess, or all the, the, the different I'm things trying. that are happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, um, you know, that, that there was my, this whole excursion into the computation neuroscience field. And uh, this was super interesting, but I, I also saw that it would take a lot of time until we get to actually get um, some hard facts about how the brain works. And even more than that, I saw that the, the incentives of the, the neuroscience community started to diverge from the incentives of the machine learning community, which already had a lot to exploit from the inspirations of neuroscience, enough to exploit. And um, what we're seeing now is basically unfolding exactly that, right? Because there's so many algorithms that have been developed in the, you know, back, back into the 70s, 80s, 90s that are only now coming to fruition because of the increased uh, compute power, because of more people getting into the field and experimenting with different ways to to apply those algorithms so you know i think it was a for me personally it was a good choice then to say okay academia has has got us this far let's let's try to actually put this into practice now and that's why i decided to go into industry and uh, actually join uh, bongfish back then uh, the gaming company the other passion my my goal was always there to to try to push 
for AI in games. So this was this was uh, my has always been my dream when I when I joined Bangfish and I did a couple of smaller projects, but then the this opportunity came along to do, to work on the Microsoft Flight Simulator. That's where we things started to to take off then. Nice. Yeah. So the whole story about the flight simulator, I, I guess a lot of people know about the flights, Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 and Bongfish, and which is now Black Shark. We we created this spin-off that just focuses on this technology that we used for the flight simulator. That's called Black Shark. This contributed the essentially the, the digital twin layer, the data for the digital twin of the flight simulator. And the short story there is, you know, take a look at Google Maps or in this case Bing Maps. What you get is uh, an image of the entire planet at relatively good resolution. In in most cases, you get 50 centimeter resolution in metropolitan areas, but it's it's 2D. It's not something that that you can you can show in a flight simulator. It's just <laughs> flat, you know, flat terrain, flat buildings, and flat flat trees. So from a, just from a perspective of the game, of course, the, to to recreate a, a 3D digital twin for a game, I would say that's a stepping stone for recreating yeah. the digital twin for the broader industry. So we t- we could take a lot of shortcuts there. Uh, it was a really fun project, super stressful, of course, at times, but also a very fun project to work on. But the main, um, I would say the main components of what we did have always been the same. We first tried to gather as much, inf- extract as, as much information about the satellite images or nowadays also aerial images in terms of what kind of objects are there, what kind of attributes can we extract using machine learning. So be very specific. Um, let's take the example of buildings because they're very prominent. What is it that you can understand about the building if you just take, take a look at the satellite imagery from top? Well, you can see the outline of the building, right? You can see the color of the roof. You can see type of the roof. Is it flat? Is it hipped? Is it gabled? You can get a rough estimate looking at from the top at the building what kind of occupancy type of building it could be. Is it does, does it look like an industrial type of building? Does it look like a residential single house family, uh, single family house building, etc. Right. So there's like a, a lot of inferences you can make just looking at the at the satellite imagery inferences that also humans routinely do when it when they look at these images. You know, this is the this is the, the the data extraction part of of our of what we do with Black Shark. I mean, and, for, for anyone listening as well who would love to see this, if you go on to BlackShark.ai on their homepage, scroll down about uh, about sixty percent down. They've got a a live demo. Well, not a live demo, but a demo of how this works, and it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, definitely check out our website. We've got some really cool material there. I mean, look on that. So that's that's obviously a great example that that you have. So it's all three D. But as as you said, you have these ugly two D images that use that use do. How do you convert these two D images into this you know beautiful three D digital twin? Right. Yeah. So uh, like I already said, we we have this extraction phase, information extraction phase. But this gives us this gives us a sparse, definitely sparse information than than the than what the image uh, itself provides. So there's a, a lot of filtering. Essentially, you disregard all the uh, the information that's not relevant for for the digital twin, and you only f- extract the information that is relevant. So in this case, in the end, you've got a footprint of a, let's say a footprint of a building and all the attributes that you wanna 
that you've extracted about that. Same thing for trees or other objects. And uh, and so that, then the question is, how do we actually turn this into a 3D world? And for this, the technology we're using is uh, procedural generation. Uh, more specifically, it's a split grammar approach. So we take we start out with these very simple descriptions, and then we gradually build them into more and more refined 3D models. So this is really a gradual process. That's, that's why it's also called split grammar, because it's a, a refiner process where you start out with, a, like, let's say, the footprint, and then you extrude it, and then you start splitting off different parts of the building, uh, like the roof part and the, the facades. And then you split it up into different um, segments of the facade and segments of the roof. Uh, until you get to the actual texturing and uh, addition of super small details like the, the door knobs. So you can really do this. This is especially well suited for, for the description of buildings. And this whole process is now guided by the information that we extracted in the first phase. Essentially, you can think of it like a tool to, to create any building that you want. It's, it's really a language that allows you to, do, to recreate virtually any building at under you know some constraints obviously but like a, a huge diversity of different buildings yeah just, just a question on that are you using multi images also and, and gaining these extra textures extra informations and characteristics about them by maybe a second scan and a third scan from different angles or so for the flight simulator we could not do that because we just didn't didn't have the data but this is actually what we're working on now with aerial image providers. So with aerial image providers, we do get these different, uh, these different views, these oblique views of the same area. And this, of course, allows us to extract you know, not only things from the top, but also from the sides to, to analyze the, the patterns of uh, window arrangements on the facades, to also get a sense of you know, what kind of material the, 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 the facade is, etc. I think that what's really unique about our approach is that so traditionally, for, uh, to contrast this with the photogrammetric approaches, especially, the photogrammetric approach takes the data as is, and then you, you can also recombine, or you have to recombine actually, uh, several views of, of the same object, and then you get uh, something like a mesh or a point cloud. And uh, the, the mesh and the point cloud can, cannot really be higher resolution than the input data. Kind of makes sense, right? You're not adding inf any information there. But this is really where our approach is different because we we start out with the the supposition that we definitely want to have a, a highly detailed model, no matter how how much data we have. So we 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 want to have a model where you can zoom in to the doorknob level. And if your data doesn't support it, then what we do is we make inferences, statistical inferences, essentially about what's likely to be there. This is, of course, um, for some use cases, this is the, uh, not the right tech because yeah. you're only sticking to what you what you really see. For other use cases, this is exactly what has been missing, right? And uh, and so for gaming, this is precisely what we saw. And then we can go into the whole question of uh, what other industries we're now tackling here, like the whole simulation business, essentially, to to really summarize it in, in one word. Everything that's used that uses simulation in 3D worlds typically also has this, it's more important that you actually have a highly detailed model than it than it's 100% um, you know, authentic. So of course, if you don't see, let's say, you, you don't see the exact positioning of a scratch in the wall because the resolution doesn't give it to you, but uh, you know that there's a certain pattern of you know scratches in the wall or doorknob placements or things like yeah. that. 
so, so you can do this kind of statistical analysis and that's that's i think really where where the the thing that differentiates our approach from from others out there so that obviously a question then that i would have on that you know the inference models is very very effective but would it also be possible for you to use something like gans to to make up a relatively synthetic version of, of what it would be also or what what would stop you from from doing something like that for i suppose let's say the black spots in your data oh yeah for sure for sure so gans are definitely something we're we're keeping a close eye on uh, not just gans but also other other generative models for for textures and other uh, or geometric structures uh, these diffusion models that have lately been super successful in in image generation and it's definitely part i think it's it's part of our uh, of our story in the future so far we've actually actually been quite successful in using different techniques for let's say texture synthesis so what, what we do is we have a huge library of different textures and we can combine those textures using uh, rule sets and this is actually easier to control and uh, by artists and that's i think the, the, the main reason why uh, this was the preferred technology so far for us i know about the papers that that let you control the the, the you know the gan synthesis of course there's a lot of research there and i think it will get there obviously i mean it would be actually probably very short sighted to think it's not but yeah. uh, just you know from from a just production point of view it wasn't just wasn't quite there yet uh, but it's definitely something we're keeping a very close eye on so look back on to to your images then and, and, and that user using. So look, you are taking them from top down from, from the sides and you know, is that's your that's your 3D reconstruction of it. Then is there using inference models to to fill in the gaps. On the topic we, we spoke about beforehand, another big part of 3D is is obviously in the rendering aspect side of things. And I've had a look at your your website. I've zoomed in very closely. Even your edge cases from like Windows Dormer windows on the opposite side of a building are very accurate. You know, it's really good. Mm. So obviously the edge cases has come up or been part of discussion or part of part of the thought process. How did you include or what did you do to to look at edge cases or did you do anything specifically to get them as, as good as you do? Because even even around your trees, you know, the they're good like <laughs> I don't know how else to say is it's it's difficult yeah. to put an edge case around the tree right lots of branches and leaves but yeah but from from aerial and satellite images again so such a far space to get such quality edge cases yeah obviously I don't know what exactly what examples you looked at but I I mean I can definitely tell you that rendering was a has been and is, is still big part of the of our work and to, to ensure that the, the rendering is you know up to the task and it's state of the art for triple a uh, gaming of course you have to do it like this right so especially on the on the building side we did a lot of work there to ensure that it's really um also in our correlation with nvidia that that's why actually they collaborated with us if you have a completely semantic description of a building or or other objects then this in principle enables you to do highly accurate and, and realistic renderings and then of course you have to put in the work to actually uh, make it so as well. Regarding the edge cases again, I'm not sure what what exactly you're referring to, but I guess I can I can what I can tell you is that we spend a lot of time on edge cases because in the end <laughs> that's where like 80% of the work is of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really not something that you typically want to initially because you're excited about the, the overall idea, 
but you very quickly realize that this is where most of the work is going into. It's really good. And I know it's going to become an even bigger topic, become an even bigger topic in gaming and, and in what you're doing as people want the things to be, I guess, is super accurate, better edge cases, better quality data, better quality data, better machine learning, better models. <laughs> exactly. It's really a virtuous cycle, I think. And yeah. that's, uh, this is also why I'm so really excited to be part of this company and this journey, because what we're doing is really the old um, you know, synthesis analysis cycle. We're doing both. We're anal analyzing the data and we're synthesizing. And then actually at some point, you know, you can use the synthesis to improve your analysis. There is already uh, an industry around this. It's called uh, synthetic training images, right? This is also one of, our, of the industries, industries that we're tackling now. You, you can use 3D worlds in order to generate training data for computer vision algorithms. It's kind of crazy to think about it. There is many cases in which you know it, this has been successfully done. You have some synthetic training data sets from 3D cities, for instance, taking out all different kinds of angles. And the cool thing is if you have the, the, the 3D world completely semantically parsed and in a computer readable format, then because you can always do the rendering and side by side, you can do a semantic map, which means you can have the, the, a perfect training data set with virtually unlimited amount of data. So that the limits are really then in the diversity of the synthetic training data set. And this is where the efforts then go into. As you gradually add more diversity, it becomes closer. The advantage of using this synthetic training data set, for instance, for pre-training a network becomes bigger and bigger. Especially the, right now, I would say in many use cases, if you use a, a well-designed synthetic training data set in conjunction with a small tra uh, labeled uh, data set, there are pretty huge gains actually you can get from that. It just makes a lot of sense to actually look at both sides of the, the analysis and the synthesis together. And, and I, I really do think it's a virtual cycle and we're sort of right in the middle of that. So that's really cool. Yeah, maybe you know, but I think, I did I did I hear that Grand Theft Auto are going to use an actual city for the next game? Is it like the city of LA or Florida or something? Could be all speculation though, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about it. Could very well be. I mean, it would make a lot of sense, though. Be cool, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> cool. And then look, while we were on the topic there of of images, I know before we move on, I want to want to ask. Obviously, if we're you're talking either satellite images or drones or manned aircrafts, unmanned aircrafts, whatever it's going to be, um, but you need to take top down pictures, data. You need side. You need almost from every angle how does it or what's the process like if you want to get a, a perfect 3d model of of something from every angle how difficult is it or or even if it is easy how easy is it right i mean the good thing is that there are companies that are specializing in exactly that and they have been doing this for you know a long time one of the companies actually was founded also in here in graz in austria vexel it's one of the leading companies for aerial image acquisition. And since we're you know, basically next door, it was an obvious choice for us to, to collaborate. Vexel was acquired by Microsoft at some point, but then it became an independent company again, I think. And uh, so now they're, uh, what Vexel is doing, so the, their base product was the, the cameras, then the, the processing software, and now a couple of years, they also have a data program, which means that they have their own planes, they fly their own planes with their own cameras and, their, and they process it with their own software. So it's kind of a nice example of uh, integration within a company. They've essentially solved the technical problems of, of this acquisition for us. 
you know, they, they provide all the data that we need in order to provide, to, to give really high quality reconstructions uh, to take into account all the different sides of and ang angles of, of a scene. On the satellite yeah, imagery side, it's a little bit more complicated because of course it's <laughs> it's harder to get uh, views of the side of buildings, right? So there you have to be a little bit more conservative. What you can get is typically relatively high, high resolution imagery already with uh, uh, at least 30 centimeters for the commercial space, 30 centimeter imagery plus um, digital surface models. So you can get a good idea of a building from top and its height. And sometimes you can actually see on the satellite images, sometimes the technical term for this is off nadir. They're also taken at a certain angle. And then you might, may get a glimpse of the facades of the color, but you can't really say you know, what exactly it looks like. So I would say there is like two tiers here, right? You know, one is with satellite images, we can really cover the entire planet at a, at a certain level of authenticity with certain limitations. And uh, if you're interested in actually the highest accuracy of reconstruction, then, you know, somebody's gonna gonna fly a plane or a drone over that area. And, uh, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense. And there's different use cases you know, for, for, for each of these tiers. Right, lovely. Do you know what? I think we've got a very good understanding now of what Black Shark do how you do it, technologies that go in behind it and, you know, what you, what it looks like. I suppose what I would like to know now is who buys or who uses your software is, you know, where does it, where does it come in and what use cases are your customers using it to solve, for example? I mean, you know, it all started in the gaming industries. So, of course, gaming is an obvious, an, an obvious customer base for the future as well. But right now, what the areas that we're really tackling are the simulation is the simulation business so we're not doing simulations ourselves but we're just selling our data to companies that do simulations or to companies that require to run some simulations some examples here are you can do a, a flat simulation so if you have a digital twin you can do a flat simulation very easily because you have uh, you have all the information about the, the digital terrain models plus the all the buildings and so you can do some really nice analysis of how many buildings would be flooded if the sea level rose by x and y right that's an obvious example of, of what you can do then of course all the simulations that go into autonomous driving and autonomous flying this is a super relevant uh, industry for us exactly because the, the models that we're providing are close to reality but they're also going a little bit beyond reality and for for simulations that need to be or required to be robust in all kinds of different scenarios this is actually uh, you know a perfect use case for us because we can we cannot just use reality to build a digital twin we can also add additional details and vary those details in order to make it let's say harder for the simulation or we can add distractors we can you can do all so sorts of um, uh, perturbations there and so again here what we're doing we're still a relatively small startup so we're not doing all the simulations that other companies are focusing on these but those are the companies that, that purchase our digital twin because they're uh, they really want to make sure that you know that the, the 3d worlds that they're testing their vehicles or drones against they're really close to the actual reality. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons for this is I think you could think about these companies just generating random worlds. That would be one way to do it. But it's actually really hard to generate random worlds that reflect the randomness of the actual world because there's so many parameters there. So it's actually much easier to just take a look at the, at the, at the actual world and reconstruct it in order to get the, the same 
kind of features and, and, and patterns that you that you find. And so this is the reason why these companies are also purchasing our, our digital uh, twin products. Cool. So let's talk about before we we get to the uh, to the end here on some of the the research topics that that user is looking at. And I know look there's two we kind of have have pipelined to mention about. One is of course active learning and how you are using that at Black Shark. And I suppose do you want to just give us a bit of an idea of of what sort of R and D looks like with that with you guys right now or yeah so we got in involved in acquisition of training data very early in the flight simulator project already and we had to make a decision whether we outsource this to to other companies or actually whether we actually do this in-house and uh, back then we made sort of non-standard decision to to actually hire some labelers in-house and do this in close collaboration with the developers how you can think about it is uh, that you have um there's always a the core team is always three people it's a developer it's an ml engineer and a labeler and then depending on the demand, you can scale up these three different types of roles. But the, the the main challenge is really how do you make sure that the combination of these three people can work most effectively towards the common goal of getting out a model that uh, works really well on global uh, prediction problems. So like uh, detecting buildings on a global scale from satellite images or aerial images. And uh, the, it's kind of a non-standard way to approach this, well, I guess it's becoming more standard. But from a from an academic point of view, you typically start out with a fixed data set, and and then you try to to tweak the model. But we what we found, and what all, many others have also found in the ML areas, is that you know for industrial applications, it's often easier to actually start tweaking the data, and uh, leave the model fixed or you know, invest less time in actually tweaking the model and just uh, adding more and more and better data. Right? So that's a, like a long way of saying we really care about our data. We, we also found out that this is the best way to, to control the accuracy of our algorithms. And, um, and so another question is, how do you build a data set right? uh, in a uh, very efficient manner with uh, time and resource constraints? And so this is how we got into the whole active learning area. And we experimented early on with this. And we found it's it's actually really effective. So there's a couple of techniques that that we use in order to to get the most out of our labelless time, and active learning is one of them. You know, the the basic idea is so simple that it's actually kind of interesting that not more that not more people are using it. As I've what I'm seeing is that more more people are actually getting interested in it. But the basic idea is really you know find the biggest errors. In your test data set, and if your test data set is the whole world, then yeah, let's use the whole world. If you don't have labeled data for your for your test data set, that the one that you're that you're really really interested in, which is actually a very common scenario, so it's sort of an unlabeled test data set. Then how do you find out what the biggest errors are in the absence of making actually comparisons? And then there are some techniques where you can say, okay, this looks really suspicious. Um, if I rotate the image by 90 degrees and then rerun inference, I actually get a completely different result than if I don't rotate it. And you, there's like a couple of games you can play there in order to to find out. You can use two models that were trained slightly differently and compare those two. Right. So there's like a couple of things you can do in order to f get suspicious about a certain inference result somewhere uh, in a remote location where the network neural network fails. Finding those places is crucial. That's what we found. Finding those places quickly and, and just going from one to the next and 
adding training data for these these edge cases or these these cases where the neural network fails. If you have a process that where you can quickly find those places, add training data, retrain, and repeat, this solves uh, 90, 99% of your of your problems, or let's say 95. And then, of course, you still have to invest in in some R and D when it comes to the, the model itself, the architecture, um, you know, scaling up the training, etc. Yeah, so that's uh, a long way of saying that we really care about active learning. We also have a patent on a really interesting approach for the AI. Uh, assisted labeling in which case you only provide really small brushes or strokes uh, you don't actually label the whole uh, objects and and it sort of auto completes is, is that uh, the, the one you mentioned to me before the live labeling for ultra fast ml prototyping yeah exactly exactly yeah, the live labeling and uh so this is uh, it's kind of there are some similar ideas out there and some actually huge companies are using um ai assisted labeling we sort of came across this from a very different angle based on our observations and we created this technology for for in-house use of course we're now thinking about building it out further so we can also uh, give it to others but the basic idea is really this you have a, a dual view of your let's say satellite images or whatever you want to label on the one side you do your labels on the other you get your predictions and it's actually live predictions of what your um what the current model or network is is thinking and the the cool thing here is that Humans are really good at spotting errors in in those prediction maps, so that's that's something that comes very easily to humans, and so you immediately see what, where the where the model is wrong, and then you can place a couple of points or or strokes exactly where the the current predictions are wrong, and the model adapts more or less instantaneously. So there's a constant training process going on. You know, in this way, you can always focus on the problems, the things that are not solved yet. In traditional labeling. And our annotation workflows, it's often that that uh, you outsource this to to people who just draw every every building in a ten square square kilometer area, and uh, that's of course very inefficient because uh, typically it is not if it's not the first iteration, the model already understands so much of this of this area, and you don't have to keep repeating the same sort of information to the model. You you actually what what you want to do is you you want to give the model the training data where the error is highest right from the perspective of the human and so this is exactly what we found out and it's uh, yeah it's it's something that works very well for us and we're constantly improving it also there's already the next generation of these these tools that we're building internally and i think it's something that has been overlooked a little bit but of course looking at companies like scale.ai and similar ones you know tides have been definitely also turning recently but when we started out in 2016-17 this was very much also a niche topic i think yeah nice well look that's that's great Stefan, and i think that kind of takes us up on on time and of what we look to discuss today so for everyone listening to today's podcast uh this is the computer vision in production podcast series i'm your host anthony kelly today's guest is Stefan Habenschuss, who is the head of machine learning at uh, blackshark.ai Stefan, great to have you. Really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Worth the wait. Yeah, thanks, Anthony, for, for the interview. Really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Computer Vision in Production podcast with your host, Anthony Kelly. To make sure you get updates on the latest episodes of the show, make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast listening app or add me on LinkedIn.